From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. I'm so excited to be chatting on this episode with my former colleague at Michigan State, Pete Cookingham. Among the many accolades bestowed on Pete, his USGA Green Section Award in 2005 recognized a lifetime contribution to ensuring the turfgrass industry has unfettered access to the latest science that helps make informed decisions. As he heads into retirement, we got a chance to catch up. My name is uh, Pete Cookingham. Today is my effective retirement date, which is the university's official way of saying you're out of here and we're finished with you. I was the head of the Turfgrass Information Center within the Michigan State University Libraries here in East Lansing, Michigan. Before we get to my conversation with Pete, let me remind you of the innovative solutions to your nutrient management needs that are available with plant food products. I bumped into National Sales Manager Tom Weinert last week at the GCSAANY fundraiser and had a chat about their Hydration A Plus wedding agent. This wedding agent uses alpha mat technology that are exclusive to plant food company products utilizing proprietary mineral acid technology that performs for 21 to 28 days. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. It's a joy just to hear your voice because it reminds me of 30 years ago when I when I came there with a brand new PhD out of Cornell and I was part of the turf program there for a while. But I want to go back a little bit and I want you to tell me what it was like the first time you ran into James Beard. Oh my goodness gracious. You know, this is complicated because of <laughs> course Jim was absolutely amazing and what Dr. Beard did for the entire turfgrass discipline is absolutely extraordinary. Without him, none of what I ended up doing here would have ever happened. So tell me, why is it complicated? Because that's exactly what I thought. I figured this was Jim's life passion. God rest his soul. Dr. Beard used to call me or send me before emails. He used to call me and he'd say, you know, Frank, I'm missing that 22nd edition of volume seven of your shortcut newsletter, of which 30 come out a year for 20 years. He's looking back and he's missing one. I knew he had a life passion for this. And that is the genesis of what ultimately became your life's work, right? In parallel with at that point, but you're not special, Frank, because he did that same thing with every. <laughs> other turf person on the planet. I know. Anybody that produced anything, distributed anything, published anything, and bordering on wrote anything, he wanted a copy of it. That was back in an era where you could have this concept of, I can collect it all as a person. Even then, it was almost unrealistic for an institution to pretend to do something like that. That's also back in the day, Pete, when you had to have a physical copy of it. I remember when I used to log on to the Star Database with Bob Edmonds at Cobleskill. It had to be in the mid-80s. And you could find it. Then you still had to go to the library and get the physical copy. So I don't think people appreciate how ahead of your time this database was that you were creating 36 years ago 
Did you ever imagine it would come to what it did? Yes and no. Just because of the technology curve, you hope that it can evolve to be something far, far bigger. You know, you always want that to happen. Uh, but the reality was when the USGA first conceived of an online resource, and they called it a database, back in 1982, when they first spec'd this, they were looking way out. I mean, that was one of the fundamental first projects in the USGA Turf Research Program. You know, Benji Field and Watson and Ricky and Jim Moncrief and that whole initial committee really saw that as a long-term need to support the evolution of turf grass science. And that was three years before I got to MSU. They really had a handle on this. Very unusual in the sciences for the folks that controlled the funding, in many senses, mm -hmm. to say, hey, we need this foundational element. It's almost like basic research. We need this as a base foundation in order to go on to greater heights across the board. So I kind of came into it, not at the beginning. And of course, Beard was doing it old school way. Print materials, everything goes on an index card. You know, you sort those thousands and thousands <laughs> of index cards. Him and Harriet over a cup of coffee. And that was true their entire life. There is a relentlessness there for the beard that drove them and their marriage and their life. It was absolutely miraculous to watch them work well into their 80s yeah. at the same level of intensity that I assume they must have done when Jim was at grad school at Purdue in the late 50s because it was this continuum, and I figured it out once, from the time he was 22 years old until he passed away, they were publishing like 1.5 articles a week over that entire period. It's productivity that's you know hard to imagine. The thing I'm having a hard time imagining is how does a kid with a master's in library science but came out in recreational science wind up running a turf library? That's the first part. The second part is you had 36 years to change your mind about it and you never did. So let's start with how did it get that you wound up doing this? Doing this, yeah. I'm a parks guy. You know, that's a recreation and parks degree, park resources degree, and my emphasis was on the natural resources side of parks, so I was literally facility operations and management, okay? And, of course, most parks, many, most, almost all, have turf as a component within parks, and, of course, a lot of golf courses are run as parts of park districts or municipal parks, so I managed turf. It was rough turf. In most cases, I was not doing fine turf. I had a three-hole pitch and putt in one of my facilities, but it wasn't putting green quality. But my point is, how do you go from a job that's almost exclusively outside to a job that's almost exclusively inside, Pete? That's, uh, that's what uh, I'm getting at here. This is, this is a tough part. And honestly, that was the biggest drawback of doing this work for that long period of time, honestly, one of my big drivers for getting outside is I need to get back outside. And in retrospect, I could say, man, I spent too much time inside. But the reality is I'm not sure how I could have done this work without being inside. It's pretty difficult. You know, it's mostly online and it's traditional library work. 
finding stuff, acquiring yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. soliciting donations of materials, structuring access so people can find stuff easily and fast, you know? Yeah, for sure. Comprehensive and as balanced and complete as possible. So how come 36 years and really no other job? That's uh, not the kind of thing you see much anymore. Never a chance to leave and move up. I'm sure library administration would have been happy to have you or even bigger databases. What was the allure of turf? I'm a, I'm a frustrated user. I came into the library world as effectively a frustrated manager. Mm-hmm. And across the applied sciences, Information resources, which is really what my focus was on the library side of things, including grad school and in this entire work, uh, was really on connecting research and management, Mm. connecting research results and outcomes to managers that might need or could make use of those results. And, of course, you say, well, that's what extension does, and that is absolutely correct. But this little piece of it is accumulating that stuff back in time and across geography and space, Mm -hmm. which is an important, important part of the puzzle, has always been attempting to be geographically independent and sector independent within the industry. But it's about service. It's about connecting users and resources on their schedule, if possible. But of course, that wasn't possible until the web came around. Okay, there you you go. So if there had to be a big moment in the 36 years, the advance of the Internet, that had to be the big moment that then led to the next big moment is now I don't want to know where to get it. I actually want the physical document. So was the Internet the big moment you were waiting for out there? Absolutely. And I'm not sure the whole effort would have survived too much longer without that happening. You know, sometimes technology gives you that ability to really do the work. And fortunately, the way we've been doing the work all along was prepared to take advantage of that capacity so that we almost just plugged into it. And then, of course, as you say, it's great to know that something exists, but everybody wants the whole thing right now. The three criteria there. And that was the next frontier, basically, was not only building what we call the metadata, the descriptive parts of keeping track of the literature, but actually make those connections to get people to the actual stuff. The tricky part is, of course, historically that was driven by print and very traditional library work where it's articles, extension bulletins, books. But, of course, that is just morphed into hundreds of different formats, podcasts, webinars, you name it. And those are all different forms of packaged and delivered information. And so the universe of potential materials to keep track of has expanded exponentially along with the technology too. Okay. So you met the challenge. You were ready for the internet. You've built out on-demand material, but at the same time, You have competition now. So the first question I would ask is, is there a value or is there precedence for these kinds of singular green industry sectors or any industry sectors that have invested this much energy in making sure there's a historical record and good record keeping of the latest stuff that comes out? Is 
when I could go to Google. I mean, is anybody doing this anymore? Uh, is it worth doing as a particular sector? Why do it when we got Google, Pete? That's a really key, key question. And as time goes on, kind of framing that, why not just Google? And of course, Google is wonderful. We all know that. We all use it. And I'm using Google generically to refer to any kind of super engine structure because there's many others and there will be many more. And in many ways, the work that we're doing now increasingly is kind of feeding Google, if you want to look at it, is to make available that stuff more broadly under the generic umbrella of open access, increasing access to stuff by parties, whoever they are, not just within the industry and the professional audience, but much more broadly. And that becomes an important mission element in terms of, you know, so what is turfgrass anyway kind of thing? And who cares? So why turf? But not only is the making those records describing the stuff important, even for Google, the reality is that Google only does digital content. Mm -hmm. And there is still a lot of our stuff that isn't digital. And in some cases, because of copyright, may never be digital. Even though that percentage is decreasing, there's still a lot of the older stuff that is still not in digital form and still remains inaccessible and unidentifiable. And we constantly find new old stuff, which is always mind-boggling when you find, you know, you think you've been doing this a long time and you must have seen it all. And the reality is stuff comes out of the woodwork all the time and it's new, but it's old. You know, when I was preparing for this, Pete, I searched up trying to find when they won the USGA award back in 2005. And congratulations. It's many years ago. It's so funny. I'm so old. That seemed like it was yesterday. You got that award. <laughs> and, you know, just so well-deserved because, you know, this kind of methodical record keeping is, is really something that requires a certain devotion to detail that, you know, isn't common. It's not found everywhere, uh, particularly not as many people spend time in libraries uh, for no, no other reason. But in preparation for this, I, I did Google you and the USGA award. And it's funny, but a couple of the TGIF records came up in my Google search. So is that what you mean by making your content searchable by Google because that is a, a very effective way of bringing people there because a lot of your stuff is is the kinds of stuff that would move the information up in a SEO, right? Exactly. And in terms of public policy and background, because there's so many decisions that are made outside the turf world that impact the turf world. And that could be policy, you know, that could be, you know, green committees that could be at any level where Oh, yeah, I'll just go find it on Google. And if good stuff is not there and tagged appropriately, and this is something else we haven't talked about yet, which is this key structural element about tagging materials so that they do show up and are effectively found, and that's the indexing that we do, which is supplemental to the stuff itself, okay, but is a really important it's kind of like it's got to have those records so it will show up in Google or any place else. And so TGIF is going to be an open data set very, very soon. Since COVID, we have effectively been open access and the database has been open. We put basically a log on on the homepage and say, you want to use it, use it. You know, there's still some of the content 
that is available on a more limited basis because many of the organizations that we cooperate have not necessarily wanted to open their stuff up and make it open access, and we fully respect that. That's their call. It's their stuff, and we want to work with them to make it as broadly available as we can, but we also fully understand and respect those decisions that are made by institutions or organizations or individuals to limit access to their content, and we are fully copyright compliant and fully respectful of copyright as a driving force, not only in scholarship, but in publishing and information availability more broadly. So just to talk about the nuts and bolts for a second, Pete, are you telling me that an average day in TGIF, there'll be papers that are on a stack somewhere or lists of links that are on a stack somewhere. Some studious young person is going to click on it, read it and abstract it and annotate it. And then it goes into the database. Is that the process still after all these years? Fundamentally, it's all keyboard work. You know, when we first started, it was all on literally on pieces of paper and done <laughs> longhand. And then a data preparation operator literally, you know, typed it in kind of like a typist, glorified typist, converting pieces of paper into online records. And, of course, we're a long, long way past that. So it's literally all digital entry. And, I mean, it was really challenging for us in COVID to convert from on-site operations to fully remote operations, because then we had to take it to the next step, which is totally remote workflows and operational construction, which is not the way we were before COVID. And we're kind of there now, even though there's always a part of the work that we can't do without having access to some of the physical stuff. The bulk of the material is fully digital. I worked up until two weeks ago, almost all the time, remotely, as did the entire TIC staff and even our student employees we were able to bring along. We had to create all new work, remote workflows and handling and quality control and, you know, the production side of the operation. We had to move to remote, and it was, it was a lot of work, and at times it was frustrating and a little inefficient, but uh, we had to do it. Well, I got to tell you, Pete, you know, my career... Uh, has very much tracked this database and and your professional life. And, you know, I can tell you, because I was always a bit of an information wonk, I always put a lot of value in the stuff I could get from TGIF. So I also got a little bit in my career to hang out with Ricky and Doc Watson. Uh, I didn't get to spend much time with Benjafield, but of course I got to spend a lot of time with Jim Snow during my time on the research committee and my time at Michigan State. And one of the things I learned from these old guys was that having that access to that old information is really critical because I basically have lived to see, meet the people who started what I did, right? Who, who were there uh, at the very beginning of this process. And I'm wondering... Do you still get people devoted to information today, you know, like we were in the past? I mean, I still send you, you know, historical stuff that I bump across. Here's the story as I know it, Pete. I'm wandering around the bowels of the Metropolitan Milwaukee Sewage District with Al Neese, who was running it at the time. And he takes me into a broom closet and he goes, oh, yeah, that's O.J. Norris <laughs> slide collection. I'm like, what? <laughs> I go in there, I'm moving stuff out yeah. of the way. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is his slide collection. It's got glass slides. I'm like, 
okay, I'm going to call Pete. And then, you know, right away, it's Gordy. Gordy calls me and says, okay, we got to get that thing here. I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's get it there. <laughs> we, we don't need to have it here. How do we still feel about collecting old stuff? For many people who listen to this, we've got a lot of historians uh, in the golf business who keep track of things. Are you still always happy to receive some archival stuff? If it's stuff we don't have already, and this is a real success part of the story that's kind of hidden and it's very difficult to see in the aggregate, but because you and so many other people have kind of done the checkoff, send stuff in, or do you have this? And the answer is either yes, we do, or no, we don't. And if the answer is no, we would really love to have it. And that still happens I don't want to say predictably and routinely because it's very uneven. You know, we still have 200 plus boxes of beard material that were transferred up from Texas after Jim passed away that we haven't even touched yet. I imagine Doc Watson had a couple of boxes as well. Those kind of transfers and donations are measured by the pallet. (laughs) Not box. <laughs> All right, Pete, listen, listen, I'm going to get you out of here on a couple of questions. What lies ahead now that you're leaving uh, out to enjoy yourself in the parks and canoeing and stuff like that? What lies ahead for TGIF? Are they going to refill your position? Can we expect the same sort of process and procedures as far as the database management goes? I believe so. This is tricky because To the best of my knowledge, it appears highly unlikely that my position will be posted as such, and they split me into me, in quotes, into pieces. The key is that the pieces are in the hands of people that have kind of come along with the enterprise and understand the literature and the industry and the materials and the data set and those folks I have very high confidence in, in terms of their capacity, their responsiveness, and how things evolve. And so if it went to me, things just need to go to the unit, and it depends what it is, who's going to respond, but those are good folks, they know their stuff, and as long as they don't get shanghai or sidetracked or reassigned, I've got good confidence in how things are going to continue to move. What about you? What lies ahead for you? Are you staying in Michigan? Are you moving? What's happening? Uh, I need to get outside more. I need more road time, which is at this point in time is kind of an oxymoron and has been for a while. My karma suffered for it, and I just I need to write more. Ironically, even though I was in the academy, I didn't have enough time to synthesize and write. So it's like, yeah, this is great. I'll actually have some time that I can invest in some of the things that I know, know about, want to know about, and can work with and contribute in a, you know, kind of an ongoing way in different ways. Well, I can tell you, Pete, I'll speak for the tens of thousands of turfgrass managers who don't even know they benefited from your work. Like I often used to say to my pal, Norm Hummel, with some of his work with the specs, right? A lot of people don't even know the people who actually do the work that benefit them. So I really appreciate you, Pete, taking the time. On behalf of everybody, we all wish you the best and a long, a long-ass retirement, Pete. You deserve it, brother, for all those years in the library, making it easier for all of us. Really appreciate you taking the time, Pete, and best of luck to you, pal. Thank you, Frank. It's 
been a joy working with the folks in the industry. And like I've been telling people, you know, I'm done, done, but I'm not done, done, done. I'll still be around. It's not like I'm moving to Costa Rica or someplace else. I'll still be around and in and out and engaged in, in selective things and trying to help out as I can in terms of the work that's ongoing. And it's just, it's been a great pleasure working with a wide range of folks across a wide range of geographies and a wide range of turf sectors throughout the industry. And it's been an amazing learning experience and just trying to work with people. So uh, my pleasure is kind of what it comes down to. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Enhancing stress tolerance is essential for every golf course superintendent. Civitas Turf Defense from IntelliGrow combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses, assist with the control of insects and diseases, as well as increases in stress tolerance. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the USA and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. So my name is Dr. Casey Reynolds. I'm executive director at Turf Grass Producers International. Uh, we're a trade association that represents seed and sod farmers, equipment manufacturers. Uh, we've got members in almost every U.S. state and over 30 countries. We represent the green industry from a production side with the overarching goal of marketing and promoting natural grass and uh, working on behalf of those who produce it and sell it. So thrilled to be chatting with Casey Reynolds today, representing the thousands of turf grass producers around the globe. Turf producers are always on the lookout for farm innovation. One of the key innovations of the last decade for golf course superintendents is the Dryject Sand Injection Service. Dryject Services offers unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation, and Sand Channel Injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service that's available and used by many of the great golf courses in the U.S. I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. Okay, so listen, let's get right to it. I think I remember some of your research at NC State with Grady Miller. Yes. You came out of there and went to A&M. My question to just get us started is, how did you go from a faculty position at A&M to this job? It seems like a interesting change uh, in career. So can you talk for a minute about how you made that change? I sure can. Interestingly enough, Frank, one of the things that attracted me most to this position is that it was not a really deviant change from the university world. As you said, my time at North Carolina State, I spent 10 years there from 2003 to 2013, and then I spent four years on the faculty at Texas A&M. And looking back on those years, I mean, it's our job as faculty members to do research and to work with the green industry and, you know, serve those who not only produce natural grass, but also manage it. One of the things that attracted me to TPI is it is a nonprofit trade association. Uh, it's a chance to, to make an impact. If you've ever dealt with farmers, you know they're wonderful people. Uh, my clientele are all farmers, and I love working with them. I grew up 
somewhat in an ag background, so it's nice to be able to work, you know, on behalf of farmers. But we have all our fingers in all these other little industries, too. I mean, what's good for the grass farmer is good for the golf course superintendent and the sports field manager and the landscaper. That's right. And um, it really wasn't that big of a shift. I do a lot less research now, but I still do much of the same things I did in my extension position, which is educating the public on natural grass, what are its benefits, you know, and just working to promote the industry that we all care about so much. That's a perfect segue to working with farmers, right? My wife and I are farming. Um, We're part of farm associations. Farmers have a particular way. They're not always keen to change some things. But then you've got turf producers, but I also heard you mention representing seed producers as well. Can you talk for a minute about the challenges that the seed farmers, from your perspective, have been facing? Yeah, so they've kind of been hit from a couple different sides here. You know, one of the things that I'm sure your listeners and you may have even had other speakers on this is one of the things that COVID highlighted was people's desire to stay at home and to improve their living space. And that does include improving their lawns. Um, it, It included getting out and playing more golf, right? I mean, we see those numbers where people are utilizing these green spaces more now due to COVID. So we had an increase in demand, a lot of people staying at home wanting to improve their lawn, buy new seed, buy new sod. But then you also had kind of some natural disasters hit. You had a drought hit the Pacific Northwest at a very critical time in seed production that lowered the yields. You have wildfires, you know, so you, you take a couple of environmental things that significantly reduce production, and then you take the economic side of some significantly increased consumption And you can imagine how those collide into high demand for seed. So one of the things that I've been curious about since you took over there, I I read your magazine with great interest cover to cover. And one of the things that always get torn out because I'm still old and I read out paper, I tear out the research that you've been working on, Casey, the stuff that you've been funding on water use, the stuff that you've been looking at on, you know, the real uh, benefits of natural grass in these urban environments. And of course, with a warming world, and eight inches of rain in the New York metropolitan area and three and a quarter inches in one hour in Central Park. I'm wondering how you feel about your research and the things you've been studying and what you've been able to do with TPI because, you know, you haven't been maybe doing it on the bench, but I have to say, big kudos. You've been funding some really cool studies. Can you highlight a couple of them that at this point you might want to talk about relative to what's been going on? Yeah. um, So again, back to the similarities in my faculty life and and this new life is, uh, you know, instead of being on the side of the bench asking for money to do research, um, I'm (laughs) on the side of the bench now giving out money to do research, which is kind of fun. The particular goals of the Lone Institute are to highlight and showcase the many environmental benefits of natural grass. Uh, We funded some projects recently on oxygen production, which, believe it or not, Frank, we did some market research about two years ago when we asked people, uh, these were consumers, what do you care about most? And we gave them some choices and we had them do some exercises. And believe it or not, oxygen production is what they cared about the most, which was fascinating to me. Like I would have thought people would have said, well, I care about carbon capture or I care about runoff reduction, but it's oxygen production. So we funded some research through a renowned plant physiology professor. Uh, Dr. Tom Rusty, and and he did some modeling to show that, you know, no matter where you are in the world, whether it's Atlanta, Minneapolis, Paris, 
Australia. Um, a 5,000 square foot natural grass lawn produces enough oxygen for between five and 34, 35 people every day, which is neat. Now, it's just a talking point. Of course, there's not a shortage of oxygen, right? But it is something that people care about. They want to know that their lawn has a positive environmental impact. Runoff reduction, it's amazing when you look at these urban and suburban centers, how they're growing. And when you look at UN population data and they say that urban areas are the primary place for growth worldwide in the near future, cities and mega cities are going to be growing. We need those green spaces, including golf courses, lawns, parks, roadsides. We need to keep plants in these artificial environments, particularly grasses that we know are good at capturing runoff. We know they capture carbon. We know they serve as a a habitat for arthropods and insects. With something else that was kind of interesting in this market research, people care. They want to know that that their lawn is thriving with life. And there's a lot of research out there to show that lawns and other green spaces, golf courses, sports fields, are thriving with arthropod communities, and the soil microbiome beneath them is thriving. And people want to know that. Hmm. You know, they, they, we need to dispel this myth that is out there, and I can give you several examples, where agencies or authoritative bodies say that grass areas are dead space. Yeah, I will say that people that get in a room with me oftentimes complain about the lack of oxygen, but that beside the point, (laughs) I wanted to talk about the anti-lawn community, and I guess on the sports side, you'd have it with the synthetic turf proponents, and even in golf, you might have it with top golf that's really not promoting Mm -hmm. green grass golf. So, you know, you have this research and certainly asking customers But at the same time, let's take the anti-lawn folks. I mean, they're just saying, well, we don't need these lawns. And I think we had a pretty clear example of what happens when you have too much impervious ground in these urban areas. And we also know that turf is concentrated, Casey, uh, in these urban areas. So what is your talking point with these folks on runoff reduction when they're saying, well, I don't need a lawn, I just need a garden, and that'll take it in. What can you say about an alternative to a lawn in this particular scenario? Well, what I would say is you need to follow the research. And I work with a lot of these agencies that work around building codes and standards, and I'm I'm not going to cite any names because I don't want to call anybody out. But let me read you one of these definitions right here on lawns regarding building codes. Conventional turf is a monoculture with a shallow root system that prevents it from storing water. Heavy rainfall runs off rather than infiltrating the surface, and because it reduces the soil's capacity to store water, turf requires irrigation. You should avoid turf in shaded and sloped areas to reduce runoff. (laughs) Okay. So... When you read that definition, it doesn't square with the research. Like, we know the research shows that perennial grasses are one of the best things in urban and suburban centers to capture water. And some of the research we funded, I'll give you a few points here, a 5,000-square-foot lawn can capture around 20,000 gallons of water before rainfall occurs. The thatch alone can capture 500 gallons before the rainfall occurs. Okay, so, I mean, there's just stat after stat like that out there in the literature. Right. So I'm so glad that we're getting to do this because I do think it's important for everybody who's in the business of managing grass uh, has a sense from the people who advocated for it as a crop. Right. I mean, it it, obviously as a crop, you guys are the ones uh, that have to advocate for this for us now. 
in light of that case, one of the reasons we got together is I heard something about Assad checkoff. And I got to believe that you want to tell us about this because the teaser was we're going to have a whole bunch of even more research and better advocacy when we get a little bit more money. So talk, let's talk a little bit about the checkoff program and what you're so excited about. Yeah, Frank, thank you. So if you're not familiar with checkoff programs, just a real quick background. They're overseen by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, there's about 22 of them right now in existence. The common checkoffs that people think about are the beef checkoff, the dairy checkoff, the soybean, the pork checkoff. But there's other ones out there as well in specialty crops like mangoes and blueberries and Christmas trees. We're trying to create one for sod production. And in essence, what a checkoff is, is it's a law that if passed by a vote of 50% plus one of U.S. sod farmers, it would become a law that every square foot of grass sold in the United States would have one-tenth of one penny per square foot of that sale go to the sod checkoff board. And that sod checkoff board would use those dollars to fund research and promotion of natural grass. And what makes it so tantalizing and exciting is when you look at the landscape of research and promotional funding right now, what you see is there's a lot of groups that do a great job representing an industry, the golf course superintendent, the sports field manager, the landscaper. But there's a gap that no one's out there heavily promoting the product that they all depend on, which is, of course, natural grass. Mm. And this sod checkoff would do that. So what we have calculated is a U.S. sod checkoff of one-tenth of one penny per square foot would raise about $14 million annually to fund research and promotion of natural grass. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and, you, and you mentioned the Lawn Institute earlier, just yeah. as an example, we fund $50,000. That's, why, that's why I was laughing, pal. That's why yeah. I was laughing. I mean, I think it took the USGA 10 years to fund $14 million worth of research. So listen, this is very interesting. Can you talk about the nuts and bolts of this, particularly to golf course superintendents that obviously are not going to be a vote here? And I yeah. guess I've never heard that this is something you're doing as an association. You're not talking about a law, a national law. Yes, we are. Oh, you a are? Law. Okay. So TPI is the association. If the checkoff were to pass, we are completely removed from it. The way all these checkoff programs get passed is they have to have a sponsoring entity. Somebody has to foot the bill to get this going. And we've spent considerable money over the last two years to try to promote this program, to pay attorneys to write it, to pay our side, to, to work with our side producers to make sure that it works for them, to work with the USDA. So we as an association at TPI, we're just funding the effort behind it. And if it passes, we hand it off to what would be called the SOD checkoff board. And in the draft order, which is the proposal that we wrote to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that would be 13 sod producers. It would be four from the northern states, five from the southern states, and four from the transition zone states. That 13-member sod producer board would be responsible for managing the checkoff. And the things they can do with checkoff dollars are all based around research and promotion. So with that budget, I mean, we've kind of come up with a hypothetical budget you know, you could fund almost three and a half million dollars in research every year. You would still have six million dollars to do promotion. So what is marketing and promotion? Well, it's national ad campaigns. It's it's corporate sponsorships. It's spokesperson sponsorships. You know, could you imagine if uh, I don't want to name any names, but a retired NFL football player or a current football player said, hey, 
I prefer natural grass because I know the data show that it is safer, less concussions, less knee injuries, less ankle injuries. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm, 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 my, I'm, I'm spending all this time picking my jaw off the floor here, Casey, uh, when I was laughing out loud, uh, because of the scale of this. So in essence, who pays this, the sod producer for every square foot of sod they sell? Is this passed on to the consumer that pays this one-tenth of one percent? Is it clear when there's a bill? Listen, because I know I I work with a lot of golf course superintendents by sod all the time. Is it going to be on their invoice that some of this money is going to X? So every sod producer in the country has the right to handle that however they would like to. And some sod producers tell me they're just going to absorb it. Uh, It's not that much money. Some sod producers say, I'm going to invoice for it. And it would equate to 50 cents per pallet of sod, because in most parts of the country, a pallet of sod is about 500 square feet. And when you do the math, it's 50 cents per pallet. So the sod farmer can pass that cost along to a golf course superintendent or a sports field manager or a landscaper, or they could absorb it and just hand it to the checkoff, you know, at their discretion. Mm. But at the end of the day, one of our overarching messages is what's good for grass is good for those who manage it. I mean, if we can promote natural grass and we can get people to see the value in keeping golf courses in urban greenscapes and keeping Mm -hmm. parks and keeping lawns, Mm -hmm. then everybody benefits. The landscaper benefits, the fertilizer salesman benefits, superintendent benefits, the sports field manager benefits. Well, and I'd argue, I'd argue, Casey, as we wrap up here, that people benefit because I listen to, as you said in that building code, and I listen to many well-intentioned citizens who are sure that lawns and golf courses represent the demise of society. It's a, it feels oh, yeah. a little different on the sports field, I will say, that the natural grass argument really resonates with the good earthers, if you would you know, having their kids play on the natural grass surfaces. But I think, you know, the lawn and the golf course thing, your ability to change that conversation that, hey, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. This is pretty simple vegetation to care for. If you do it smartly, it has all these benefits. Now, of course, you know, we also take it on the chin because we've industrialized its care a little bit and that worries people. So it would be really good case for you guys, I would think, to couch this as a way of really benefiting it, the environment without you having to kill yourself to do it. It's inherently a system that will build soil and filter the water. And you don't have to, you know, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. You don't have to do the four-step plan or the, you know, fertilize it every month plan. There's lots of ways to have natural grass surfaces. Yeah, and that's part of the checkoff's job. And that's where this thing is really the one-two punch. With that checkoff fund, you could not only do the research to show that story, you could do the research to, to do all the things you just described, but you'd also have the money to have the marketing budget to tell it. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not uncommon for these great stories to be sitting in the research literature, mm-hmm. but nobody's out there telling it. That's correct. And, exactly and you, right. you see these echo chambers all the time where I might tell a story to a superintendent or a sports field manager or a landscaper, but they already know it. Right. Well, who's telling the city council person and who's telling the soccer mom and who's telling the, the voter? <laughs> you That's, know? Right. That's right. This checkoff budget would allow us to do that. 
Well, listen, how do we get more information? Again, a lot of golf course superintendents, some sports field people, the occasional landscaper are listening to this. I don't know that a lot of sod growers listen. So let's give information to the people who are not the turf producers on how they can learn more about this. Well, so we have a website called sodcheckoff.org. It is primarily focused on the farmer, but you can go to it and you could read some of the success stories about, you know, what other checkoffs it's done, like what the almond checkoff and mango checkoffs have done for their industries. The full draft proposal for the order is on that website as well. So if they wanted to just read it and learn some of the background about what are the market trends that challenge our industry, what are the threats on the horizon that we need to address, all of that's on the website. As far as the timing, I would say the timing affects your average listener. This thing will likely go up for vote sometime next spring. If it were to pass, it would likely go into effect at the end of 2022 or early 2023, so you wouldn't see any impact on your side for the next 18 months at all. And you may never see it. Again, right. if a farmer decides to absorb that cost, you'll never see it. But you're, you're talking about a solid 18 months before you see any impact to a, a golf course superintendent or a field manager. Before I let you go, and I promise this is the last question, how many sod producers do we have that will vote on this? And obviously 50% plus one. How many sod growers will vote on this? Well, so the USDA Ag Census has some information on how many sod farmers are in the United States. We at TPI do. And without boring you with the details, there are about 1,100 U.S. sod farmers. That's what I thought. Every one of them has the right to vote. And they get one vote, one farm, one vote. And if it passes by a majority of those who vote, it will become law. Okay. And uh, if it doesn't get a majority vote plus one, it rides off into the sunset and you'll likely never hear about it again. You feeling good that this is going to pass? It's hard to say, Frank. I mean, the farmers I talk to generally support it, but it's the farmers you don't talk to that you just don't know about, right? right? I mean, when I go to meetings and I've gone all over the country, I've been to Maryland, New Jersey, North Carolina, I'm going to Florida. Kansas, Georgia, Mississippi. I'm, I mean, I'm literally traveling the country in the next eight or nine months to tell this story. Great. And for the farmers that are there, the majority of them get it. They understand the need for it. Once they're there and they hear about the nuts and bolts about how it works, they're generally supportive of it. Um, the issue is you just don't know about the 400 farmers that you can never get to a meeting. Right. I mean, are they going to vote yes? Are they going to vote no? That's right. But I do feel like it's a good program. The nuts and bolts of it are solid. It's fair. It's equitable. I think everyone recognizes the need for it. It's just about getting folks to understand it and uh, willing to get behind it and vote yes for it. Best of luck to you, Casey. Thanks for taking the time to join me. I'm so excited because I think you're exactly right. I, I think the work you're doing is basically like academic work. Instead of sitting down and writing a grant for eight months, you're going to travel the country getting everybody signed on to the checkoff plan. Best luck to you, Casey. Thanks for taking the Thank time. Thank you, Frank. Yes, sir. Take care. Big thanks to both Pete Cookingham and Casey Reynolds. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. 
Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design, Nicole Rossi, theme music, Tucker Rossi, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.